Well, we're in the Gospel of Luke, so if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 18, we're going to continue our journey through this Gospel. I'm sure most of us would like to think of ourselves as independent people. I don't know if you know this, if you've lived your whole life, but it's been said of those that live on the West Coast that you, we usually march to our own beat. Uh, they're independent from the rest of the country. We're usually the West Coast are risk takers. I, I find that to be true. I, I know that when our extended family, family realized we were moving from Michigan to Washington State, they looked at us strangely and, and curious why you're doing that. But independence really in some ways was driving part of that. And newly married, only a few months, my wife and I packed up our things and drove west. And so I see it in my own self. I'm sure you see it in yours, this, this thread of independence that flows through us. Most of you are happily independent. But the reality is, as I've spent time thinking why I do what I do and what you do, what you do probably, is there's still that other thread flowing through each of us that's looking for someone else's approval. So we want independence, and yet we want approval. We want someone to, to give us validation. We, f- we find ourselves constantly looking for approval from people outside of ourselves because we realize we can't fully validate or approve ourselves. We, we talk a good game of independence. We put up a good front, but when the rubber meets the road, we really do care what other people think of us. Social media has proven this time and again. You you read many stories and stats over this. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever the one you enjoy most, has has revealed really what's going going on deep down inside of us. And And it's really exploited that for their benefit. These social networks have proven that we we need to be liked. We need to be agreed with. Some of us really need to be argued with. And we want someone to notice us, to approve us. I mean, follow with me this. We, We have so many followers. Maybe this isn't as important now. It was when it started. But we have these followers and we begin to compare ourselves with others. They have more followers than we do. But maybe that's not your, your jam. No, maybe it's, it's really how do people interact with what you put on social media. We post something, something witty, something we, we've spent some time crafting over, and, and we post it, and we don't just leave it. No, we got to go back to see who liked it. Was it shared? Are, are they going to dialogue now with us? Or if you go on vacation or just a trip for a weekend and you begin to post photos, you don't just post them into the ether and never go back to visit it. No, you, you want to see who's liking your photos. Which video got the most views that you posted? And you're really wanting approval in that. You're wanting some affirmation. And the desire for approval can certainly lead us in the wrong path, can lead us to make bad decisions, can even lead us to sin. And we tend to sometimes look for approval in the wrong places. And we look for it in this world. And sometimes we find it, but when we realize it's really never satisfying. And we have to find approval again. And so we go looking for more people or more ways to to get people's approval on us. Some affirmation, some validation of who we are and what we're doing. But friends, you and I were actually made to seek the approval of someone. Did you know that? You're actually hardwired 
to seek the approval of someone in a meaningful way, and that's God. The approval that we desperately need in our life is from God, but that approval can't be earned by our good works, by the things we say or the things we do. Our approval is not by likes or shares of pictures that we post. Our approval is from God, and it only comes through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, through humility. So this morning we turn to Luke chapter 18, and we look at four pictures. We'll look at four pictures this morning, four, four short stories as we make our way through Luke's gospel. Last week we looked at all of chapter 17. This week we're not going to finish quite the chapter, but we're going to look at the first 30 verses of Luke chapter 18. And here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust, hopefully, that we'll understand as we look at this. Kingdom citizens will embrace a childlike humility in their pursuit of God. Kingdom citizens will embrace a childlike humility in their pursuit of God. And in this chapter, Jesus is going to share some parables to give us some insight in ourselves and and teach us the, the helplessness of man, the sinner, and the absolute necessity of the free grace of God. So if you haven't turned... Turn to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the, in the pews there, in the chairs, sorry. And you're welcome to use that and take that home. But if you don't have the Bible open, you might get lost here as we're walking through this. So four points that I want to cover this morning, four through these 30 verses. First is the humble widow. Second, the humble tax collector. Third, humble children. And fourth, humble disciples. So we're going to dive in here. Luke chapter 18. He begins with a parable, and I, I want to say this at the onset. While some parables in Luke's gospel teach or confirm a new teaching, other parables break up the soil to, of the previous teaching so that we can understand a new perspective on what Jesus is saying. And so when we come to 18, chapter 18, we read a parable that follows very closely to the prior chapter and the encouragement that Jesus gave to his followers to patiently endure their suffering as they wait for the Son of Man to come. And so Jesus is preparing his, his followers to patiently endure, and he gives them this, this picture, this parable of the humble widow. That's point number one. And the parable is structured neatly. And right at the beginning, we learn what the parable means. Look at verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So he starts right at the outset to to make sure they understand what he's about to share. If you remember from last week in chapter 17, Jesus is coming again, and he's going to set all things right, and and believers should wait for that day with expected prayer, Jesus says. Praying always. Praying always doesn't mean all we do is pray. It's another way, though, of expressing to pray without ceasing that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 5. And and what he's trying to communicate is that prayer should be a regular feature of our lives as Christians. And so then he launches into this parable. Look at verse 2. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In this parable, there is a a widow who's suffering wrong and indifference, which is exactly what God's elect as a group will be facing. And we hear nothing of her difficulty. We're not sure what it is exactly, but we hear her plea. Give me justice against my adversary. 
She seems to be under attack and wants a decision from the judge. She's a vulnerable widow and most likely without any resources on her own. She's defenseless and she wants the judge to, to put things right. But what we read in this parable is this judge doesn't care. He doesn't care about her and he doesn't care about anyone, it seems. But then the judge gives in. And why does the judge finally give in? Because Jesus says, she, she will beat me down by her continual coming. The verb here, to beat down, is best translated, wear me out. And if you're a parent here this morning, you understand what this means, right? You know exactly what Jesus is saying. To wear me out. Some have translated it to mean that she's going to give a beat down. Like she's going to give him a black eye or something. But that doesn't seem rational. No, he, he's tired of being bothered day in and day out. And he wants to stop dealing with her. So he's going he's gonna to act now. But then Jesus applies this to the disciples. He says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to, the, to his elect who cry to him day and night, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the point of this parable is that God is much better than the unjust judge. And so if the unrighteous judge secures justice for the widow, we can be certain that the Heavenly Father will make sure that those who cry out to him will receive justice. Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the unrighteous judge who despises God and mistreats people will give justice, then our holy and just God will certainly give justice to his elect who voice their concerns to him day and night. This is not saying, however, that that the only way for God to answer is to harass him. It's not what he's saying. No, he's wanting his children to continue to come to him to not quit. That's the lesson. To keep going in prayer. And then he ends there of this, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I wonder if at this point Jesus is is saying this in the earshot of his disciples as he directs it to the Pharisees. And and he asks this deliberate question on on whether he'll be able to find people who have faith when he returns. Or or will he find a generation like this godless? godless, faithless Pharisees? What kind of person will he find when he comes back? Will be a persistent person in humble prayer, seeking the Lord for answers? Or will he find people who have given up? People who have resorted to complaining? Who stopped praying and and started boycotting and, and protesting? To get my justice, I have to do this. Or will he find faith on earth? I th- you know, I thought of this week, do we, do we understand prayer yet? Your prayer is seeking and asking and knocking and waiting. Lots of waiting. Prayer involves trusting God. And some begin to faint in the silence and been tempted to grow weary in their prayers, thinking it doesn't work, that God's not going to answer, question the validity of it all. 
Friends, prayer is hard. But prayer is what we're to be busy with in this world while we wait. We're to pray and not lose heart, Jesus says. One preacher said, until you have stood for years knocking at a locked door, your knuckles bleeding, you do not really know what prayer is. Do we understand prayer like this? Like that man, what he says. And some of you have experienced great injustice in this life. And God says to pray. Some of you are dealing with difficulties in your marriage. And God says to pray. Some of you are facing really difficult situations with your kids. And God says to pray. Or you're experiencing trouble at work or with classmates. And God says to pray. To not lose heart. To keep on praying. Be persistent. Friends, when there's no way out, we should pray. When, when things are not turning for the better and, and justice is not coming, God says pray. When, when that relationship has just fizzled out, God says to pray. And God's people live in a world in which we're assailed and, and sometimes annihilated, but we're not to lose heart and throw in the towel, but we're to keep praying for God to put things right. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The faith that Jesus speaks of here is a faith that shows itself in persevering prayer. John Piper uses this illustration. Faith is the furnace in your life. He says, faith, or excuse me, fuel equals grace. Shovel equals prayer. If you set down your shovel, your burner will go out. Keep shoveling. Shovel without stopping, pray without ceasing. Pray so that you don't lose heart. To lose heart means to give up. Keep praying so you don't lose heart. And there are believers who flame out because they don't pray. They stopped praying. They stop talking with God and they lose faith because they're not connected to the one who gives faith. And Jesus is encouraging us to keep in contact with him through prayer. And so friends, are you connected to God through humble prayer? If not, perhaps this is why your faith is feeling like it's going to fail. Faith is the furnace in your life. And what John Piper says, we need to keep shoveling. Keep shoveling. Pray without ceasing. And God will answer. He, he promises he will. If an unrighteous judge who fears no one is eventually moved by persistent pleading, how much more does a righteous God, moved by compassion and goodness and mercy and faith, hearing the prayers of his people who pray night and day, how much more will he answer? Friends, justice will come. Don't give up. Don't quit. God will avenge his elect. He won't forget us, friends. In, in the first story here, God encourages us so that he will soon vindicate his saints. But the, the next parable is not that those who think of themselves as saints who will be vindicated, but those who confess themselves as sinners. And so if Christ is coming to execute the judgment of God on all evil and unrighteous men, then it should lead us to ask, who are the righteous and who are, or excuse me, who are the unrighteous and who are the just? So that leads into the second point, the humble tax collector. 
I'm sure you've heard this or read this parable before. It's, it's been well known for many years. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And again, here Luke, right at the beginning, tells us right off the bat what the parable means. Jesus is going to teach about how deceptive self-righteousness can be. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We've talked about the Pharisees a number of times in this gospel. The Pharisees were widely respected for their piety and their devotion. Devotion to the Torah and their obedience to that, and this man was no exception. These were the people that you would want living next door to you. When the house went for sale, you would think, I hope it's a Pharisee. These were the people that you would want to coach your son's Little League team. They were the ones that were righteous and well-dressed. They were the upstanding individuals who who served the church, who hosted a small group at their house, who gave their income. They were the ones who guarded the conservative values, who fought the religious battles that needed to be fought. They stood up for holiness and righteous living. But the tax collectors, on the other hand, were widely despised as traitors and thieves and oppressors of their own people. If they moved into your neighborhood you would caution your kids from talking to them without you present. You wouldn't want what they're doing to rub off on your children. They were never asked to to serve on school boards. Instead, they were viewed with suspicion and fear. They were not viewed as upstanding citizens by their community. Instead, they were mocked and frowned upon. To have a tax collector as a friend was an oxymoron. You were not to spend any time around them. You were to avoid them. And here we are in this parable, these two individuals coming to the center place, to the temple, coming to pray. The Pharisee points to his spiritual resume while he's praying, taking his stand on his own merits. And he gives thanks. He gives thanks not to God, right? Who does he give thanks to? I just want to see if you're still awake with me here this morning. To himself. He's thankful for himself. Thank you, God, for me. Look at verse 11. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. The Pharisee is in a class all by himself. And he looks over to see this tax collector and his prayer is filled with disgust for this man and only prays for himself. Did you notice how, many, how often his uh, prayer is filled with I? 
This shows self-absorption and narcissism. He's full of himself. But that's not what we read of the tax collector. He comes to God in prayer with a posture of humility. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows and he feels himself completely unworthy. He stands far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. Instead, he strikes his chest with grief. Why? His total focus is not on what he has done, but what he knows he could never do. He could never save himself. He knows himself too well. He knows that he is far from God. He knows that he is a sinner. And he knows that his only way out of this is to cry out to God for mercy. His prayer, be merciful, uses the word associated with temple sacrifice. Literally, it's to atone for. And he stands there knowing he's a sinner. He stands there all by himself. No one will stand with him. And he cries out to God, please, let there be atonement for me. A vile, wicked sinner. God, cover me. And he cries for something beyond himself, something outside of himself. He cries for salvation, and God answers. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector is justified. He was not justified by anything he has done. All he could do was confess his sin. The word justified in verse 14 means to be declared righteous, to be made right with God. To be right with God rests on something beyond us, something foreign to us, something outside of us, something out there, something we could never do ourselves. It rests on whether there is an atoning sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God towards our sin. Friends, it rests on God and God alone. And and the point of this parable is, is the rest of verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. No one enters the kingdom of God on the basis of their own righteousness. Because apart from Jesus Christ, no human being has ever acquired enough righteousness to fulfill the absolute and perfect demands of the holy law of God. It is by grace, in grace alone, that we could ever have access into God's presence. All of us stand guilty before the righteousness of God, Pharisee and tax collector alike. And the difference between these two men wasn't that one was righteous and the other was a sinner. No, they're both sinners. The difference was that the tax collector knew he was a sinner and he repented of his sin and the Pharisee didn't. The same can be said of every person that's seated here this morning. We have Pharisees and tax collectors right in our midst. There are those here this morning who have chosen to believe that they can get a relationship with God through their behavior, through their right thinking, through their effort. And they come week after week believing that they are God's child. 
And then we have those who know they can never earn a relationship with God on their own, no matter how hard they try, they always fail. And they lean on Christ alone for salvation. We have Pharisees and tax collectors every week joining us. Which one are you? Are you innocent or are you guilty? Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story of a duke who boarded a galley ship and went below to talk with the criminals manning the oars. He would ask several of them what their offense was. Almost every man claimed he was innocent, blaming someone else or accusing the judge of taking a bribe. Except one young fellow, however, replying, saying, Sir, I deserve to be here. I stole some money. No one's at fault but me. I'm guilty. Upon hearing this, the duke shouted, You scoundrel, you! What are you doing here with all these honest men? Get out of the company at once. And the duke ordered that the prisoner be released. He was set free while the rest were left to tug at the oars. The key to the prisoner's freedom was that he admitted his guilt. And friend, this is true in salvation. Until a person is willing to admit, I am a sinner, I need salvation, I need Jesus, he will not experience freedom from guilt and condemnation. Have you ever said, I'm guilty? Have you said that before to God? Have you admitted that? And do you know what you're guilty of? God, our holy creator and righteous judge, created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever, but we didn't want that. All the way back to Adam, our representative in the garden, we choose ourselves every day and all day. We do what we want, we desire what we want, we hurt others to get what we want, and we steal and we lie and we cheat, all to build ourselves up and to keep ourselves secure. And because we all live this way, the Bible says we deserve death, spiritual separation from God and hell. And so we all are guilty. Every single one of us. We're guilty. And yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man for our justification, taking our sin, my sin, upon himself on the cross. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. Isn't that the best exchange ever? I mean, isn't that amazing news? Have you gotten over that yet? I don't think I have. That is the best exchange. He takes our self-righteousness upon himself, and he gives us eternal and free and holy righteousness that only God could provide through Jesus Christ. He steps in when we could do nothing to save ourselves and he dies for our sins because we couldn't do it for ourselves. And he rose again and God accepted his sacrifice and makes us perfect in Jesus Christ. And you've heard it said, perhaps you've even said it yourself, no one's perfect. But that's the end of people's confession usually. It's not enough to admit that you're a sinner. You have to repent of that. In fact, to, to acknowledge that we're sinners, but to never repent, blasphemes God. 
the tax collector here not only admits that he's a sinner, he confesses it before God and he begs for mercy. He doesn't excuse his sin. He doesn't whitewash his sin. He doesn't say, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was raised. He confesses it and repents of it and he begs God for mercy. And what happens to him in this story? He goes home justified. Remember, friends, if anyone within the community here who, who would not go home from the temple justified in, in the rational thinking, it would have been the tax collector. He was despised in his lifestyle and his occupation. There was no human way he could be justified in God's sight. But God works not in human ways. He does what is humanly impossible. He saves him. The Pharisee, though, he would have been the one from the world's standards who would have went home justified. He was religious. He was dependable. He was the tithing type who paid the salary of the pastor so he could preach. And he wasn't justified. And yet, get this, he goes home thinking he's justified. The Pharisee went home from the temple unaccepted, unjustified, and unaware that he was still under God's wrath towards his sin. Let that sink in. He believed he was all right. Religion can be very deceptive, my friends. He was really good at seeing the flaws in others but he couldn't see himself. And I wonder in that, if we were to examine ourselves as relentlessly as we examine others, we might discover areas in our life we need to repent of also. In all this, in this parable, we learn that self-righteous people will be barred from heaven. They won't be let in. God decides who's righteous. It doesn't depend on your feelings or your achievements. That all depends on God. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I implore you to turn from your sins of trusting in yourself and in your righteousness and turn to God and trust in Christ alone. Your self-righteousness is not enough. You need Christ's righteousness. Christians, I heard a story this week. I'm not sure if it's true or not, so just listen. A little boy was in a Sunday school class after hearing this parable taught, and he was asked to close the class in prayer, and he prayed, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the Pharisee. We laugh at this, smiling because the boy missed the point. But is it possible we're silently congratulating ourselves for being more insightful than this boy? Are you possibly saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this boy, that I understand it all? 
possibility that we might miss the force of this parable. The temptation for all of us is to leave this place and say, God, thank you that I'm not like that little boy or this Pharisee. And in so doing, we've not understood the parable. And we're more like the Pharisee than we'd like to admit. The comparison of a Pharisee to a Christian is, is here, I believe. And I think we need to lean into it as Christians. I'm not saying that all Christians are Pharisees. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that anyone, of anyone in this world, a Christian has the strongest temptation to be a Pharisee in practice. And so ask yourself, do I secretly congratulate myself when I come to church or when I do my devotions and read the Bible or when I give, when I serve? Do I pat myself on the back when I live a morally respectable life? See, these thoughts is what makes religion so sneaky and dangerous. Our very faith can become a means of self-worship. Instead, we should pray to be more aware of ourselves, seeking to ask the Lord to show us ourselves because we so easily deceive ourselves. We should pray, as we heard a few weeks ago from Psalm 139 from Pastor Chris, and, and ask the Lord to show us, us, True humility is there when we feel our sin and not make excuses for it. And God wants us to leave all of our excuses behind and deeply and humbly admit to him that we need him, that we need his mercy. God wants us as Christians to respond like this tax collector, to see ourselves in him, and to remember the gospel and apply it to ourselves on a daily basis. We don't have to pretend to be righteous. We can be honest with ourselves. And we can be honest with others. And asking others to pray for us. And there's freedom there, friends. There's freedom there because of what Christ has done for us. That we can have those relationships with one another. Well, we've seen the humble widow and the tax collector third, and this is a, a quick point, the humble children, verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. Now they were bringing in, even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Here in this, we, this, this story that Luke I think very wisely places right here in this chapter. It's children being brought to Jesus by their parents, perhaps to be blessed or just touched by Jesus, and the disciples are poo-pooing this idea. You know, get, get them out of here. They're, they're clogging up time here. Perhaps they wanted to save Jesus from, from people fatigue, or, or maybe they were irritated that the people kept imposing themselves on Jesus. Perhaps they think that he has more important things to do than to be bothered by children, but Jesus rebukes him. 
It says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And that's an interesting phrase there. David Garland writes this, Jesus does not refer to some inherent quality in children such as their imagined receptivity, humility, trustfulness, lack of self-consciousness, transparency, hopefulness, openness to the future, simplicity, freshness, excitement, or any idealized quality that commentators often attribute to children. None of these virtues were associated with the children in the first century first century culture, and they instead reflect a contemporary sentimental view of children. So instead, the quality that children possess in this is the, an abundance of their unworthiness. That's what Jesus is saying. A child is helpless and dependent on others. That's the quality that Jesus is emphasizing here. Friends, what does an infant need when it's born into the world? Everything. It can't do anything for itself. They need to be clothed and diapered and fed and comforted. They need everything. They need everything to live because they won't make it on their own. They're unable or unworthy to do what they need to do to live. And that's the quality that Jesus is highlighting here. And here's why it's important. This is why Luke is such a good writer. Okay? It is fitting that Luke includes this incident right after the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector because the Pharisee thanked God that he was so mature and so righteous and holy. And the tax collector, no, he became a child. And, and it's ideal that Luke places this not only after that, but then before the account of the one we're going to look at next, the rich young ruler, because no amount of work will merit God's approval in our lives. He's, he's not saying that children automatically are in God's kingdom, but that a small child with no status, no merit on their own, illustrates perfectly the kind of person who will enter the kingdom of God. Merit and achievement are two words that are not applicable to small children. And so we must become like them, dependent as children towards God. We do not and should not pretend we can make it in life apart from his grace. And we should view ourselves as humble children. I told you it was quick. Point number four and last point. The rest of the chapter here. The, the last story is that of the rich ruler and it shows us that he does not think of himself as a child dependent on God because he has the same estimation of himself as the Pharisee did earlier. He is a ruler. He is not dependent on anyone, in fact. We, we, we've, we were learning this. He's fully dependent on himself. Look at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is an interesting question here that Jesus poses to this rich man. And he's, I believe, leading him 
uh, leading this man in a logical conclusion of his assumption. If Jesus is good, then he is God. And if Jesus is God, then he deserves to be listened to, to have full loyalty. And if Jesus was in fact God in the flesh and the ruler was truly coming to find out what it took to be saved, then, then he would need to be prepared to do whatever this good teacher was about to say. So let's find out what he does. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. After Jesus goes through some of the commandments, not all of them given in the law, The man responds confidently, independently. All these I have kept from my youth. He believes that he is fully qualified, independent, and yet he's still seeking approval from Jesus. So Jesus doesn't confront him with his failures, but summons him to be his disciple. And he would need to sell all that he has, give it to the poor and follow him. And did you catch the promise that Jesus gives to him if he obeys, you will have treasure in heaven. The man has promised treasure in heaven. He's promised treasure in heaven if he lets go of all the treasures here on earth. And what a promise that is, friends. Verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. This man had always been able to pay for what he had in his life and he was ready to pay for his eternal life. But he didn't have enough. Jesus says he still lacked something. Perhaps he's sad and grieved simply because he believed that he was going to be commended by Jesus. He was most definitely earthly rich, but he was spiritually poor and he didn't know it. How tragic that this man knew the the commandments, but he didn't know himself. The very first commandment we read in the Old Testament prohibits any kind of idolatry, and Jesus here exposes his idolatry. Jesus puts him to the test to see if if he has any other gods before him and for God alone. And when Jesus tells him to sell all that he has, he has found the pocket in his life that he wanted to keep hidden. Jesus found that spot that he didn't want anyone else to notice. You know those spots, don't you? Those spots in your life thing that is hidden from everyone else, that dark part of your life where you desperately hope no light will be shown on. Jesus is seeking that out in your life too. To bring it into the light for your good and for God's glory. Friends, this is how God works. He gets at our most fundamental idolatry and he ruthlessly crushes it and has unfathomable love for our good and for his glory. 
this man didn't really love God alone. His wealth was his idol. He really tried to live in obedience to all the commandments, but the very first one he failed. And ultimately, he couldn't give up his idol. He not only had wealth, his wealth had him. He had to have his money. He had to have his possessions. And those possessions would eventually kill him. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Jesus isn't saying that wealth is evil and that all rich people need to sell their positions and give it to the poor. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying he's calling for absolute allegiance and demanding that genuine discipleship to be a Christian should put following him above all competing loves. Christ is too big a God to have him in our hands and to hold on to this world as well. I have a child in my home, I'm not going to tell you which one, that whenever we ask her, this child to help, they're all girls, so whenever I ask her to help with something in the house, they always have a hold of something. They're always walking around with something, some toy or some item that they want to make sure that their other three sisters don't get. And so to make sure, because if they put it down, right, there's a, there's a possibility that the sibling will come and snatch it. And they want it, so they walk around. And so I come home with groceries, hey, can you help? And they're trying to navigate bags, holding on to this item. And as a parent, I'm like, put down the item. And they grasp it tighter. And I feel like that's true in our lives as well. You're holding on tight to something and you're carrying it around and you're saying, I'm going to follow Jesus, but you don't have, you don't have the ability. Your hands are full with things that you have to keep. like a, a blanket to protect you in some ways. And you're unwilling to let it go. You're afraid that if you do let it go, that you will miss it too much. And God is saying to let it go, to embrace him alone. Because Christ is too big and too wonderful a God to have in your hands and at the same time, hold on to anything in this world. He's too big. He's, he's too wonderful, friends. And you can't do it. You'll have to let go of one of them. You can't hold on to this world in Christ at the same time. You can't do it. You'll either let go of the world and embrace him, or you'll let go of him 
and embrace the world. Friends, this rich ruler looks at Jesus, hears him and the offer that he has, treasures in heaven, and he he hears it and he sees him and he looks and he looks at himself, he looks at his life, he looks at his wealth, he looks at his possessions, he looks and he chooses them over him. And this happens every day on earth. It's shocking. It reminds me of Gollum. You've read the books or seen the movies, Lord of the Rings, right? Who continues to fight after this ring and fight after this ring in the last scene of the movie. He finally gets the ring and he screams out, my precious. And what happens? He falls to his death. How tragic holding on to this world instead of holding on to God. Verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. It would be impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, but the impossibility is based on the fact that he is not rich with righteousness, and that's the requirement for heaven. Salvation is all of God. We bring nothing to the table, my friends, except for our sin. Rich people have access and ease in this world, so it's assumed by many that the rich will have access and ease with God, but that's not true. People believe that wealth in a person's life indicates blessing from God in all their life. People even go so far to say that, that the rich have easier access to salvation, but that's not true. In fact, the opposite, it seems to be true here. They have a harder time because the temptation is stronger to supply all that they need in this world and begin to believe that they can supply all that they need in the world to come. And not only can preoccupation with wealth and possessions leave them unprepared for the judgments that will accompany the coming kingdom, but this, their present possessions that they have make the kingdom of God appear very much less as, as supreme in value. It's not, as, it's not as appealing to them. It only becomes a, a good thing to them that they would gladly have if they can have it in addition to the life they have and the riches they have here. They want heaven as an, as an add-on. That's exactly what I shared last week from Richard Baxter. There's a great deal of difference between the desires of heaven and a believer and an unbeliever. The believer prizes heaven above this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only over hell. To the ungodly, there is nothing that seems more desirable than this world. And therefore, he only chooses heaven over hell, but not heaven over this world. And therefore, he will not have heaven upon such a choice. This ruler walks away sad because he prized this world over heaven. And Peter says, and let's end here, Peter says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter's words may seem boastful, 
I believe following Jesus and renouncing all of his possessions is, is, is what the rich ruler should have done. He should have recognized that to have Jesus was worth more than all the, the wealth and possessions of this world. And in this, in this statement, it's proven that these men were genuinely looking to follow Jesus no matter what. They left those things. And Jesus seems to affirm the commitment of Peter and the other disciples here. Friends, Christ will certainly bring situations into your life and make demands in your life that don't seem fair. He will demand your entire life. He will rearrange your life. He will remove people who you desperately love. He will remove circumstances that you love and homes that you love and careers that you love. And he will cause you to take stands that turn friends against you. And he may even ask for you to stand when, o- when no one else will stand. And it will cost you greatly. And he may call you to sacrifice, friends. But listen, he will give more. He will give more. He will be faithful to his elect, to his children. This rich man was ultimately a very bad businessman. He was offered the greatest profit in the kingdom of glory, giving all that he had on earth to gain something that he could never earn himself, and he turns it down. He was chasing the approval of others when he had the approval of God right there before him. And he leaves because the cost was too much for him. You know, circling back from the beginning this morning, we spend so much of our time chasing the approval of people on the internet or at work or at school. And we chase their approval to gain some statement from them that we're okay, that we're doing right, we're, we're, we're living their way. And then we tend to change our behavior in our lives to gain more validation from those to get their approval in this world, to try to keep working that they will like us, to uphold us. Friends, they're just sinners just like us. They're doing the same thing in their own life. It really doesn't matter how much people think of you, how much they approve of you. It doesn't. It only matters what God thinks of you. He is the only one that matters when this life is done. God sent his son Jesus who died and rose again so that God could give you approval, not because you attained it, but because Jesus secured it. And he gives us an approval that heals our brokenness, an approval that forgives us of all of our sin, an approval that finally and fully makes us what we were meant to be a child of God, fully forgiven, only because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see. We do ask where there is darkness in our life that you would bring light. We pray that you would bring change of heart so that we would begin to hate what we once loved 
and begin to love you even though we once hated you. And we ask that you would give us faith in Christ, faith that perseveres to the end. We admit this morning we cannot do this on our own. We need your grace. We need your strength. We need you to keep doing this work in us until Jesus comes back for us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. Would you keep us close to you this week? Close to you in your word? That you'd be helping us to persevere in prayer. And may we honor and glorify you in our lives. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.